What a different message that is from the passage we will read from the book of Acts this morning. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19? We'll be reading from verse 21 to verse 41. If you uh, did not bring your Bible this morning, we encourage you to find a copy of Scripture in the chair in front of you. Um, we will read from uh, page number 928 in our Pew Bibles. And as you turn there, as you find this passage, um, I want to remind you that we are currently going through a sermon series through the book of Acts, uh, seeing how God prepared a salvation for sinners, a salvation through Jesus Christ, a salvation that is to be declared to all people. This is the overall theme of the book of Acts, God's salvation prepared in Christ Jesus to be declared to all the earth. Well, this morning we read just one section of this large book of Acts from chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with a confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, 
great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when, we, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. Would you, would you join with me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless the reading of his word and the preaching of his message. Our Father, we declare that we are sinners. And because of that, we need your spirit to understand your truth. Would you use your Holy Spirit for our hearts, to open our hearts, to give understanding to our minds, and give softening to our wills, so that we may respond appropriately to your word and to your message. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Acts 19, this is the last story of uh, Paul's two-year journey in the city of Ephesus. Now, the fact that Paul would spend so much time giving us this last or this third story of his ministry in Ephesus speaks to its significance, to its importance. What is the purpose of, of relating this story, of this riot? Why would, why would Luke spend so much time speaking to us about this protest in Ephesus? Well, remember the context. Remember uh, this chapter from the very beginning in verse 1. Um, Luke chose to tell us some stories that highlighted Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus. And the first one is that Paul encountered the disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, yet they did not have a clear understanding of what a true Christian is. A true Christian is someone who has a clear has clear faith in the Lord Jesus and has a clear knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as a crucified and risen Messiah of Israel, as the exalted Savior of the world. A real Christian is someone who has pledged allegiance to Jesus and who, have received, who has received the gift of the Holy Spirit, whose presence is evident in a transformed reality of their lives. Paul showed his competency in discerning the spiritual condition of these disciples of John the Baptist. They still needed to understand the gospel and to respond to it appropriately. This is the first story of, of Ephesus, of Paul in Ephesus. Then it's a story of the pretenders. 
the pretenders who claimed the name of Jesus for doing miracles, but they themselves had not turned to Christ in faith and repentance. They learned the hard way that you can't claim the name of Jesus as a magical formula. It was a hard lesson. They were deeply humiliated. And their story became known in all of Ephesus, in all that region. And actually that story led many of the believers to, uh, to come out of their closets. Many of the believers who practiced, kept practicing secretly sorcery and magic, came out of the closets and confessed their sins and their practices. And they even burned their books of magic. Actually, they were so valuable that uh, Luke tells us the value of, of those books as, as being 50,000 silver coins. They completely turned that to Jesus and have turned their backs to pagan rituals of sorcery. Well, that's the background. Against this backdrop of, of Paul's impact in Ephesus, of the, of the impact of the gospel, we get another story. Another story about how the gospel made an impact on the Ephesians and specifically on their worship of the goddess Artemis and on the commercial trade associated with the worship of this goddess. So this morning I want to I talk about the impact of the gospel. Luke wants us to understand and know the impact of the gospel on the city of Ephesus. Uh, my, my sermon this morning may be taught in, in two major parts. And the first part is this, the impact of the gospel can cause fears. The impact of the gospel can cause fears. You know, as good as the gospel news is, you know, we would expect that anyone and everyone would embrace it joyfully with open arms and ready to follow it, right? Well, not really. The impact of the gospel can cause fears. And this morning we will see some of those fears as represented uh, by Demetrius. But before that, let's look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. By the way, the way, the way is a label for Christianity. We, we don't know why he had acquired this label. Was it because Jesus said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Was it because uh, people who became followers of Christ wanted to be associated with this idea of Jesus is the way? Uh, that the life of following Jesus, the life of faith in Jesus, is a journey of actually following in the footsteps of Jesus? Perhaps. We don't really know, but it's a great label for describing Christianity as, as the way. The way of Christianity came to be at odds with the pagan religious life of the, of the city of Ephesus. Now, we've seen already how the industry of sorcery and magic uh, had been greatly affected. We saw that last week. But today we will see how the industry of idol-making was affected by this way that was the way of the followers of Jesus. In verse 24, look at verse 24, we're introduced to this man named Demetrius. Look at what it says. 
a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. And he brought no little business to the craftsmen. Notice what he does. He gathers together the people uh, in similar trades and persuades them to take a stand against Paul's message. Why? Why does, why is he, why does he give this speech? Why does he initiate this, this convention, this, this meeting? Well, because of some fears that he perceived. Some fears that he perceived. And, and we, can, we can organize these fears in at least three categories. Uh, three fears about the impact of the gospel. Three fears that Demetrius will bring out. The first one is fear for wealth. Fear for wealth. Look at verse 25. B says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And what, what an interesting way to introduce this topic. And the fact that he brings this up first and foremost uh, is actually tells us a great deal about really his motivation for bringing up these fears. The underlying motivation for his protest was his pocketbook. He was upset and afraid that the source of his income would dry out one day if things go the way they appear to go because of the gospel. He and his craftsmen were in the business of, of making these miniature figures of the temple of Artemis and miniature figures of her statue that people would buy as, as acts of piety or as acts of devotion. And, uh, and, and, and he realizes that the preaching of the gospel actually made a dent in the sales figures of these, of these miniature figures of this industry. So he's upset, for the threat of the gospel posed a great threat to his pocketbook. Now, by the way, you know, remember, this was the same pattern that Paul experienced in Philippi when, um, when Paul cast out from a slave girl who was indwelled by a spirit of fortune-telling. Paul cast out the spirit of fortune-telling, and the owners of the, of the servant girl were, was, were really upset. Why? Because they had lost their hopes of income. In a similar way, the same thing is going on here, but at a larger scale, at a, at a scale of a whole city. Demetrius seeks to instigate this protest, and his first appeal in his persuasive speech is to appeal to people's money. How amazing. How amazing that love for money has the ability to cloud their thinking. Why do I say that? Remember, Paul is at the end of his two years in Ephesus. By this time, everybody has heard about him. By this time, people have heard about the miracles that God was doing through the hands of Paul himself. People were responding to the message of the gospel, and everybody knew these craftsmen were not ignorant of that fact. And yet, their thinking becomes clouded. What clouded their thinking? The love of money. The love of money. Friends, for the love of money, people can react against Christianity. And even, even for Christians, the love of money continues to be a, a continuous threat and danger. We can fall again into the, into the trap of, of loving money. Remember, Jesus said very clearly, you cannot serve two masters. 
For either you will love one or love the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The first reason that Demetrius brings up is this love for money, or the fear of money, of wealth. The second reason is the fear for idol make, the idol-making business. The idol-making business was threatened by the, by the gospel. Look at how Demetrius describes Paul. Verse 26. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, friends, was this description accurate? Was this description that Demetrius gave about what Paul preached, was this description accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember Paul's speech in Athens? Remember what Paul preached in the Areopagus in the, in the, in, on, on Mars Hill? That God does not dwell, the true God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. And actually that the true God cannot be associated with figures men, made by men. That actually these figures made by men are not true gods. Well, when Paul goes to Ephesus, he's going to carry on the same message. So that all of Ephesus and almost all of Asia hear this message of Paul. That gods made with human hands are not gods at all. And that the true God actually calls all people to repent. Well, this message was heard loud and clear. Paul's message was not just a message about what the true God is, but also about the idols made by human hands. How empty they are. And that Paul called people to turn away from worshiping such false idols. This was part of responding to God. It involves not just believing in God, but also turning away from that which is empty, that which is in vain, that which is false worship. Notice why Demetrius was angry on Paul. Look at what he says about what Paul was able to do. Not only what Paul said, but what Paul was able to do. Paul was able to persuade and turn people away from worshiping such gods. Wow. No wonder Demetrius is upset. Given Paul's message and given his success of actually turning people away, Demetrius is afraid that the industry of idol-making will suffer disrepute. He says in verse 27, there's danger not only that the trade of ours may come into disrepute. The logic is simple. If Christianity is claiming that idols made by human hands are not gods at all, and if it's Christianity, if true Christians actually turn away from their idols, then this business of ours will suffer. That's the logic. You know who else mocked the business of making idols by hand? God. In the book of Isaiah, he laughed. He laughed at the people who made man-made idols. And he wants us to see how illogical that is from the bigger perspective of time. 
God wants us to see that man-made idols are worthless. Why? Because God says, there is no other God besides me. I am the true God. I'm the only true God. Here, Demetrius has an intuition that the entire trade will suffer severely and falling into disrepute. Friends, I have a question for you. What does this say? What does this message of Demetrius say about the Christianity that resulted from Paul's preaching? What does Demetrius' fear say about the Christianity that resulted from Paul's, from Paul's preaching? That indeed it produced change in people's lives. They were not Christians by name only. It actually made them change. It produced change. The third reason that, um, that Demetrius brings to these tradesmen is the fear that religion, the religion of Ephesus, will disappear. Look at verse 27, the second half of verse 27. But also that the temple of the great goddess, Artemis, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. In other words, Demetrius here is combining not just his love for wealth, not just his fear for the trade business, but also he combines here the patriotism of Ephesus and the religion of Ephesus together. He is saying that the temple edifice itself and the goddess Artemis will be forgotten, abandoned, and counted as nothing. My friends, it's at this very reason that uh, we see a major assumption in Demetrius about man-made gods. It's at this very moment that we see a big difference between man-made gods and the true God. Look at, look at the assumption Demetrius has when he says this claim, that the assumption is this, that the goddess Artemis actually needs worshipers in order to continue her reputation. Right? That's, that's what in, essentially Demetrius is saying, that this goddess of the Ephesians needed their loyalty in order to keep her glory. Otherwise, if these Ephesians start following the gospel, then the glory of Artemis will be gone. That she will be deposed of her magnificence. That's the assumption. Now, friends, it's at this very moment that we see such a contrast between man-made gods and the true God. False gods need worshipers in order to exist. Man-made gods need man in order to continue their reputation. But the true God doesn't. The true God exists independent of our worship of Him. He exists and is glorious whether or not we acknowledge Him as God. His glorious and magnificent splendor is regardless of whether or not human beings like you and me come to acknowledge it. God is independent for his glory and for his existence. He's independent from his creation. But the Artemis of the Ephesians? 
Demetrius is afraid that she will lose her magnificence and become nothing if people will turn away from her to the true God. Now, was his fear correct? Was he right in having that fear? Well, time gives us an indication. Friends, I don't know about you, but I've searched and looked around. I don't know anyone today who still worships Artemis. I mean, I just don't know anybody today who would still think of the glory of, of the Diana of the Ephesians as, as she was known in the, in the Latin world. I, I just don't. Perhaps you do, but if you do, let me know. But there's no one today. In other words, the Diana of the Ephesians has lost her glory. No one counts her of having any value today for anything. Well, the book of Revelation speaks loudly that even if the whole world were to turn against God and against his people, the true God is still glorious. The true God would not lose his magnificence. The true God not only would, would keep on his glory, the true God would actually overcome all those who continue to rebel against him. Why? Because he is glorious. He is the only true God. Friends, realize that every man-made God will eventually become nothing. Time will tell. Perhaps not now. Perhaps not in our lifetime. But the final day of judgment will be a final proof that all the false gods will be made nothing. But you know, friends, it's a bit too late to count, to count on that final day of judgment to come to that conclusion. You will come to that conclusion. Everyone will come to that conclusion. But it will be too late for that. That's why the gospel helps us get a picture of the end even now. The gospel helps us see that all the, all the man-made idols are indeed empty. They're vain. They are good for nothing in the long perspective of time, of eternity. You know, the great wise man Solomon, who tried various idols, various gods of life. He tried them all, and after trying them all, he said, it's all vanity, empty. That's a testimony of those who, who try it out and leave, it, leave time to prove it. Well, friends, the gospel brings to an end the worship of man-made idols. This is a, the, new, the good news of the gospel. Dear friend, if, if you're not a Christian or if, you, if you've had experience with Christianity but you've, you haven't understood the message of the gospel, here, here's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is the, it's the good news of God's salvation that turns men, sinners like us, turns us away from worshiping false idols. Why? Because the gospel tells us that the one true God whom we have offended, the one true God against whom we have turned our backs, he did not give up on pursuing us. As a matter of fact, even though we de de deserved his right wrath, his righteous wrath, he pursued us and he gave his only son. Through his son Jesus, rebellious people like us, could be turned back to him, could be brought back to him so that we could worship him again from a heart that has been redeemed and restored. And it's people who 
turn back to the Lord, repenting of their sins and trusting and putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. People like that who are given a new heart, a new life, they are brought back into the worship of the true God. Friends, if, if you have never thought of repenting of your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus for you to be saved, I pray that you would do that even now, even today, even as we're gathered here, even before the service is over. The true gospel is able to enlighten our eyes. The true gospel of Jesus is able to break the chains, break that which clutters our thinking, break the love of money, because we realize that God himself has given for us his only begotten Son, that which he had most precious, he gave him for us, so that through his Son we might be healed, restored, redeemed, rescued, brought back into union with God, so that we may worship him in the way that he made possible for us through Jesus in the way that he determined through his book, the Scriptures. Friend, if you've never responded to this gospel, I pray that you would today. I'd love to talk to you more at the end of the service. But here's a great point, dear friends. The glory of the true God is seen even in the moments when we have turned our backs on him. For Demetrius, the glory of Artemis was endangered if her worshipers turned her back on her. The glory of God is seen in the, in the very way God acts when his worshipers, when those whom he created have turned his back on him. What does God do? What does a true God do? He goes back after them, pursuing them, bring them back to himself. God's glory is independent of his creation. As a matter of fact, because God's glory is independent of his creation, that's why, because, that's why God can pursue us and bring us back to himself. Oh, friends, when we proclaim the gospel, we should have no fear to say that claiming the truth about God challenges our idolatry. We should have no fear of showing the empty way of the idolatrous living around us. Living life apart from God is empty, is vain. And we may not see it now. The world around us may not see it now, but they will see it one day. But it may be too late. That's why we pray and preach that the gospel would indeed expose the idolatries of the world around us. The fears which Demetrius presented to these craftsmen were true are true. And it led them to causing a huge riot in Ephesus. Verse 28 tells us that when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with, um, with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were with Paul, companions in travel. Here's the amazing part. The city of Ephesus was enchained and blinded. For two hours, they keep shouting, 
great is our team is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, can you imagine a huge theater about 24,000 seats filled with people? And for two hours, that's what they shot. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What a blindness. We look back. We look back 2,000 years later. We look back. How could they be so blind? How could they be so blind? How could they be so zealous? How could they be so devoted to stand two long hours, 120 minutes, crying one line, one sentence, five, verse, five words, over and over and over again? How could they be so brainwashed? You know, we laugh. We laugh today, looking back, right? Because we have the perspective of time. But you know, I wonder... If Christ would not return for another 2,000 years, what would generations 2,000 years from now laugh at us because of our idolatries that we were blinded to? Because of our zeal and our pursuit and our eagerness to worship man-made idols. The reality is that these idolatry, these idols, blind our thinking, blind our eyes, and we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to help us see the truth. How sad and pitiful that thousands and thousands of Ephesians for two hours stand there confused, eager, and zealous to worship something that is not true. Well, they bring in a... Paul wants to go in. Paul wants to clear the, the, the confusion, and the disciples don't let him. Paul is ready, even though he might have been at the cost of his life. Paul is ready to go in. Disciples don't let him. Other friends in high power say, don't go there. Don't, don't you dare go there. This is not the time. So, so Paul doesn't. But they bring in a Jew, and, and he's hoping to, to, to silence this riot, but he can't. And then they bring the clerk, the, the clerk of the city. And it's amazing that God used neither Paul nor this Jew, but this pagan clerk. We don't know what, what he's about. We don't know his background. But God used this pagan clerk to, to silence the impact or the, the, the riot. And in his speech, in the speech of this clerk, we see how the impact of the gospel was felt. This is my, the second point I'd like to show you. How, how is the impact of the gospel felt through the eyes of the city clerk? There's many ways we can gauge the impact of the gospel in a city. But this morning, we see that impact through the filter of a, of a pagan clerk of the city of Ephesus. Uh, his speech shows us another aspect of the nature of Christian influence at Ephesus at that time. Actually, from his words, the first thing we see is what the impact of the gospel was not. It was not changing the patriotic identity of the city. The gospel did not change the patriotic identity of the city. Look at what the, the clerk affirms in verse 35. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Hmm. You see, Artemis was known in Ephesus as a founder and guide of the city. 
and her name and image were found on coins and on official documents throughout the city. She was regarded as the protector of the city's fortifications and about of the city's general welfare. So the, the entire identity of the city was wrapped around this goddess, Diana or Artemis. And, and given this mesh of religion and patriotism that went hand in hand together, the clerk reminds these, this, this crowd, the, these group of people, that the city of, Ephes of Ephesus was the, the temple keeper. And indeed, there was a huge, monumental, beautiful, magnificent temple in Ephesus for this goddess. You see, the impact of, of the gospel in the city of Ephesus was not in changing the, the official identity of the city. I mean, that would have been nice. <laughs> that would have been nice. I'm not saying they should have tried, but that was not their impact. As a matter of fact, the, the clerk affirms, you know what, officially, everything stays the same. Nothing has changed. And yet there's, a, there's another stream of influence. It was a grassroots influence. It was a personal influence of Christians. It wasn't the public arena. It wasn't the laws of the city. It was a personal life of Christians. The second thing that, that, the, 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 that the clerk says is that the impact of, of, of the gospel was not shown through violence or acting forcefully to impose Christianity on the city in any forceful way. Yes, a city clerk was able to affirm that these Christians have not done anything unlawful. They haven't deprived, they haven't um, stolen anything from the temple, they haven't spoken blasphemously against the goddess. So the clerk advises Demetrius that if he has any complaint, go to the courts, settle the matter there, and if this crowd has still something to, to say or do, they should hold on until the public gathering of the city. And then given these facts, the clerk says that uh, this riot is illegal. Look at verse 40. We are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. I love what uh, David Peterson says in his commentary that this chapter shows the, the potential of the gospel to transform the life and culture of a city and its surrounding regions. But yet... It wasn't through campaigns trying to change a city. It wasn't through political aspirations trying to change the leadership of the city. It wasn't through political aspirations and laws that would outlaw idol worship or fight forcefully against it. Friends, it was the simple preaching of the gospel which changed people's lives personally. And they began living different lives. And they stopped buying the miniature temple and the miniature statues that gave credence and piety to the cult of the Artemis. It was that simple. The simple preaching of the gospel which changed people's lives that lived differently in the city. History tells us that it was not just Demetrius who had this fear of the economic impact of the gospel. Pliny the Younger, a, young, a, a governor under the Emperor Trajan, wrote around 100 AD, so about 50 years after this experience, to the emperor warning him that Christianity posed a threat to the economic um, situation of his region. And here's why, Pliny said. Because people were buying fewer 
animals sacrificed to idols. That caused an economic crisis. And Pliny the Younger assured the emperor that his forceful measures against Christians were resulting in the revival of the sacred festivals. You see, it's, it's not that we need, I mean, it's nice to have laws that, that favor our, our worship, but we don't need laws or, or, or civil powers in order to forcefully bring Christianity to our region. That's not the way the gospel moves forward, dear friends. It's with the simple preaching of the gospel that actually changes people's lives, makes them live differently. And that imbalances even the economic structure of a place. Friends, can you imagine if Christians in Austin would have such an impact in our city that owners of idolatrous industries would become concerned and react and be provoked and alarmed? Can you imagine? If Christians would, would take Christianity, would take their, their way of following Jesus so seriously that would affect that which they purchase. That it would affect that which they consume. That it would affect that which they delight in, in their hobbies, in their free time, in what they do with their life. Can you imagine if Christianity would bring that kind of an impact? We should long for Christians to have that kind of impact in society. Not the forceful, not the manipulative kind of influence, but the simple influence of the gospel bearing fruit in our lives. Christians living in godly ways, turning their backs from sinful and idolatrous practices so that the industries of such places would suffer great financial loss. Let me tell you about a story that I've heard in it, that a, at a, a great convention of a religious organization in meeting in a certain place um, made the newspapers that it made, brought such great industry um, and, and uh, it helped the local economy because of all the, the hotels and all the services that the, uh, the people attending this religious convention um, brought to the, to the area. And people were happy that this particular denomination had one of the largest conventions attended in a very, very long time. A few, years, a few days later, uh, in a different newspaper, speaking about the same situation, same area, spoke how the adult channels in the hotel rooms had more requests than usual in that area. What does that say? When actually our sinful practices bring more economy, more money to the sinful industries. It should be the other way around. We should be grieved that we don't walk the way when we don't walk the way. I pray that Christians will have this kind of an impact in, in, around us, that it, the gospel would so change us, it would so change our lives that indeed people would see the impact I pray that the name of the Lord Jesus would be associated with the exclusive worship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the worship of idols would be put in jeopardy, would be frail, would be endangered 
Oh, how I pray for that to happen. That was one of the, that was one of the signs of the great revivals. Great revivals were seen that indeed society was changed when God swept his spirit in a, near, in a region. It was seen because indeed society changed, not from top down, not from civil matters down, but grassroots, from people's lives being changed. And that changed the fabric of society. As I pray, I long that the gospel have this kind of impact through us in Austin. Would you pray with me? Father, we desire to exalt you as the only true and living God. We desire to exalt you as the only one worthy of our devotion and worship, as the one only one worthy of our affections. We desire to declare that you are more worthy than silver and gold. You are more worthy than anything that this world can offer and promise. O oh Lord, forgive your people when we have contributed to the idol worship around us, when we have practiced it secretly or publicly. Lord, I pray for us, for these people, for our gathering here this morning, and I pray for others who might hear this message elsewhere. Pray that you would draw your people to such an exclusive worship of you that the economy of sinful, idolatrous practices might suffer. And that people would see the impact of your gospel, that indeed your truth is able to persuade us and turn us away and worship you wholeheartedly. Oh Lord, make your church a pure bride so that others around us might see the changes, might understand that indeed, they may not like it, but they may understand that indeed the gospel changes us. Oh, Lord, we pray for your glory to be exhibited through your church. Continue to purify us, make us spotless without wrinkle, and present us 